0: But first of all, I'd like to start by introducing the first of our speakers. And it's a special thanks for Professor Markandia for coming along here today because he actually flew in yesterday from, from Armenia. And um, we had a brief worry for a moment that, um, that actually the direct flights have been cancelled. And um, he's actually had to come in through Moscow, so we're very glad that he could be with us here today. He actually joined the university in 1996 as a professor of economics. And before that, he had an illustrious career working for organisations such as um, University College London, but also for the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. But in recent years, he's been a major contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And some of you may be aware that actually last year, in October 2007, the IPCC, along with Al Gore, was given the Nobel Peace Prize. And so it's a very significant um, award and recognition for the work of the IPCC, which Anneels played a major part He's the leader of an active research team at the university working on environmental economics and at the moment is working on several projects funded through the European Commission. And he's actually recently voted one of the world's top 50 sustainability thought leaders, whatever one of them is. But, um, <laughs> but he's there and we're very proud that he is there. And we're delighted to introduce him for his talk today, which is going to be on measuring well-being and sustainability. A very complex issue, but hopefully Anil will give us a bit of an insight into it. Anil. Thank you. Thank you very much,
1: uh, and it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, have a chance to speak to you. Um, This talk is about uh, measuring well-being and sustainability. It's not about my main work, which has been on climate change in the last couple of years, but we have been, and my group have been involved in working on these issues. It's also an issue which has now taken uh, quite a lot of interest in in policy terms, Uh, we had a big meeting in Brussels, uh, which was chaired by the president of the European Commission, Mr. Barroso, which was called Beyond GDP. A lot of people are concerned that our policies are too much governed by uh, indicators such as gross domestic product. The aim of this research and this work is to try and see how we can extend our the the indicators that we use when we make policy and not focus uh, exclusively on GDP. Perhaps in the light of the recent events and the uh, financial turmoil, uh, we ought to perhaps take a seat back and think of other indicators that uh, reflect on our our well-being. So uh, really what we're interested in is, of course, why do we want to measure well-being? Um, what are its components, and uh, particularly look at uh, the use of gross domestic product, gross domestic product per capita. And then I'll talk a bit about how we might try and adjust GDP to account for things such as damage to the environment, Um, and then perhaps look at some other measures. And then uh, the last part of the talk, I want to say a few words about not measuring uh, uh, gross domestic product or income, but trying to measure wealth, And to measure wealth in a wider context than simply our physical wealth, but to take account of wealth to include human wealth, human capital, which is very important, social capital, which is extremely important, and also natural capital. So, of course, why do we want to measure well-being? Well, of course, it's an indicator of performance of society. And believe me, when you go and visit many of the countries that are trying to Develop, they focus a great deal on what they think are indicators of their well being. So, in China, the Chinese are very proud of the fact that their GDP is growing at 12 or 10 percent, whatever it has been the last few years, and they seek policies that will promote that. Uh, They also, as I said, so it is a guide to policy. And the aim is to include diverse sources of well-being to see if we can understand what are the trade-offs between them, not just uh, uh, GDP but other indicators. So as I said, GDP per capita is is very commonly used and it's it's, uh, an indicator you'll find in in almost all the financial uh, uh, publications, all the major statistics, but it does have many shortcomings. Um, it uh, it, uh, it depends on what the prices we use to calculate values it doesn't include environmental impacts. some people say it 's not gross domestic product it's gross domestic pollution uh, it 's a measure of it, it doesn 't tell us how the, that gross domestic product is distributed in society so we're lacking uh, an understanding of the distribution of GDP of the equality or inequality and yeah, then we don't have valuation of the components of GDP. But having said all these things, it still is very, it's very important because it's take, a lot of people take a great deal of account of it. So here are some kind of numbers of the values that we have in just U.S. dollars per capita. You can see right at the top there, the richest country perhaps in these terms would be Luxembourg, and then we go down, and over the years, the EU average is somewhere uh, around there. Um, and this is simply in, in, in dollars per capita. And then the BRIC countries, the Brazil, Russia, India, and China, are beginning to appear about there, about $8,000. And they, of course, what their main aim is, is to get up up, up this, climb up this curve, to get closer to the... Kind of averages that we are seeing here. Uh, we also have the new accession countries, which are a little bit higher than the bri- the, the the BRICS, uh, and uh, we have, of course, uh, the 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 wealthier countries. The, uh, the EU 27, of course, includes the new accession members, so that's one reason why it's a little bit lower. With the EU 15, it would be perhaps somewhere up around a little bit below Ireland. Ireland is not very different from the United Kingdom. Um, Now uh, that, uh, of course, one of the adjustments we want to make is just to allow for the fact that uh, that those calculations are just calculated at the constant exchange rate. And here we do an adjustment which is for purchasing power. So money goes further in some countries than it does in others. Uh, you might be familiar with the so-called uh, Mac index, where you look at the cost of a hamburger, Macdonald hamburger, in different countries, and adjust for the fact that it's a little bit cheaper in some, more, a lot cheaper in some, than in others. And here you can see uh, the index based again. Uh, Luxembourg is probably is at the top there, but differences are getting somewhat it's it compacts the scale a little bit because you begin to see the countries which are which were a lot uh, um, which had relatively a lot lower gdp are actually a little bit better than than you might have thought they were because prices are lower in those countries and then uh, we uh, then the, the other adjustment we we've been trying to make and this is work we've been doing here is to say, well, let's allow for the fact that when we produce goods and services, we damage. Uh, we, create in, we create environmental damage, environmental pollution, and we've been trying to value this pollution in, in, in different years. And uh, here we have figures for the UK, Germany, and Spain, and we have tried to value the damages caused through, through, air, through air pollution, through resource extraction, toxic substances, water, and waste. And uh, despite our best efforts, the, only, the area we, where we really have made some progress is air pollution, where actually things have been getting better. We have damages which were considerably higher in 1990, about 24 billion. We've valued them now. We value them around 13 billion. But the, the, the striking thing about these figures is they really are rather small compared to gross domestic product. So we haven't, even if we allowed for these, the calculations or policies wouldn't be so much influenced uh, with respect to to policies that would seek to increase GDP. We also haven't made a lot of progress in areas like biodiversity, which a lot of people, where we've actually had some improvements because we've uh, been uh, uh, creating um, better conservation areas and so on, but a lot of people who work in, in, on biodiversity would be very unhappy to say that we haven't really succeeded in, in valuing their damages. And then we have uh, water which is and, and noise and toxic substances where the figures still remain quite small. So there's a lot more to do here and a lot more to, to understand better the, these damages in money terms. And one of the reasons we want to value in money terms is so that we can, we can persuade governments of the value of trying to protect the environment. Let me now turn to some other, what we would call non-GDP measures of, of well-being. And here are some uh, which we, would, we are trying to understand and promote uh, as, uh, to run in parallel with the kind of GDP figures which are so dominating the debate. And of course, one of the things which concerns us all is our, our life expectancy. <clears throat> so here we have measure of what we call healthy life years. So these are adjustments of life expectancy for years when your health is, not, is impaired. And here, the, again, the striking thing is that at least within the European countries, while there may be big differences in per capita income, in fact, in terms of life, healthy life years, they're rather similar. Some, some countries are a little bit higher than others, Sweden, Italy tend to do a little bit better. Um, the EU average is a little bit lower. I didn't include the UK, unfortunately, but we are not quite as good as the EU 27. We're a little bit below that, mm, but not, not, not a lot. So we, are, um, have, we would like to encourage policies that also promote healthy life years. So that is an important indicator. He Here's another measure, which is a little bit different, happy life years. <laughs> happy life years are uh, life years adjusted for some measure of how satisfied people are. Here, there are bigger differences. So countries like Bulgaria, Latvia, Lithuania, the BRICS have uh, rather lower happy life years. And again, by and large, the Scandinavian countries do well and the EU average is somewhere in between. Other indicators, and some people will now be aware, particularly in the current climate of unemployment, and we would like to include in our measures of well-being an indicator of the unemployment rate, because even if you are not yourself unemployed, an increase in the unemployment rate creates uh, stress and concern, and therefore impacts on the well-being of everybody. And here we've had indicators again, the UK is now almost certainly going to be going up from what we see here um, and, and we're going to be seeing in general increase in the next few years as a result of the financial crises. We also like to indi- in some indication here of uh, one of the major pollutants which we are interested in, and that is the greenhouse gases emitted per capita. And you can see also here, quite uh, significant differences between countries. So Ireland, for example, is rather, rather profligate in terms of its GDP emissions. Um, the UK is, is, is a, quite a bit lower, but still higher than the EU27 average. So I give these as some of the indicators that we are interested in. Here's another one which you might not be so familiar with, it's called the ecological footprint. And it calculates how much land is needed to provide all the goods and services that each person consumes in, in, a, in a country. And it's an indicator of global hectares that we need to satisfy our demands. Here you can see that some countries, uh, particularly the, the, Eastern Europe, the, the um, Scandinavian countries, have quite a large ecological footprint. Um, uh, it's still, uh, and, and if you look at countries like Brazil, India, and China, their ecological footprint is still relatively small. So again, this uh, and many of the organizations like the World Wide Fund for Nature are very strong in promoting this indicator. Another indicator which we like to see included in well in well-being is the indicator of the cons- corruption or corruption perception. And here, the higher the indicator, the better it is. So that countries like Finland, the Scandinavian countries do very well, the Eastern European countries tend to do much less well. Countries certainly like um, the one I've just come from, and the, in Armenia, do really quite badly. And those, that indicator also does impact on people. People in within the country, who talk to them, they feel a sense. They're cynical. They they feel a sense of. Uh, Betrayal about the way in which society is organized, and this is a very important indicator in that respect. Then let's turn lastly perhaps to happiness, and this we might think is difficult to measure, but here is an indicator of how globally happiness is distributed with with measures based on national uh, surveys of happiness done in a quite sophisticated way now, and you'd expect the richer countries tend to be the happiest, but it's not quite as simple as that. We do have some countries where happiness is really rather low, and Russia, particularly in Eastern Europe during this period, do rather badly relative to their per capita income and well-being. Because we still have, and some countries do a little bit better than you might think given their 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 income and certainly some of the Latin American countries have quite why, high happiness indicators, Chile, there, Argentina, even given their all their problems. So we want to begin to understand why there are these differences, but happiness measured over time does differ from income, and here I have a comparison between from 1970 to 2000, the last 30 years. And that green line shows how per capita income has been growing, which is going up steadily. But happiness has not been increasing in line with that. So, again, we have some dissonance, some disconnect between these two in, in indicators of well-being. And, of course, here we try and plot between the relationship between the happiness score and the and the um, per capita income. And you can see that it isn't straight, is isn't a straight line. There is some indication, but there are countries who tend to do better than their income would suggest in terms of happiness. The line has a, has a, has a slope, but it, is, it, isn't, it isn't a linear relationship, not a simple relationship, for 28 countries. And here's the relationship fitted using statistical methods to data from the EU, and it's even less, it's even more nonlinear with some real uh, falling off or tailing off of, of happiness or satisfaction with GDP. There are other indicators. I won't go into these very much, but let me turn a little bit to the measures of my last... Uh, have I still got time? Oh, on, on wealth, uh, measures of wealth, And this is work that I've been involved in uh, with a lot of uh, support from the World Bank as well. Uh, But there are other researchers working on it as well. And the idea here is that to be sustainable, we must not allow our wealth to decline. So if we are to pass on to future generations the capacity to produce and to live well, we must hand over at least as much as we inherited. But what do we hand over? Well, we hand over a mixture of natural capital, social capital, physical, and human. And what we want to be able to understand in these these measures is the value of all these different forms of capital, and what this work tries to do is to to measure these in monetary terms. So here are some of the measures that we've constructed uh, based on the three types of capital we haven't succeeded in separating human and social capital. That's very difficult to do. But if you take a country like Switzerland, uh, but look at all the countries on this list and you'll see that the total wealth, this was uh, about $650,000 per person. Natural capital makes up only 1% of it. Produced capital makes up about 15%. But what really makes up the, the lion's share is intangible capital. This is, of course, partly what human capital and what we in this university and others are concerned in producing, but also other capital, which includes social capital, that is, the network of relations, uh, the network of uh, institutions that make it possible for countries to function well. And so one of the the most striking relationships we find is that the the real the real wealth of nations lies in this last column here? Um, here are some of the countries that have actually got negative intangible capital. I'll explain to you later if we have time. But these are countries which are where we have a situation of really where governance has broken down to such an extent that that uh, the production is below what it would be given their natural and produced capital. One of the things we try to do is to understand what determines this intangible capital. How is it... What are the factors that most influence the level of intangible capital? And the research showed that, uh, of course, the, the most important factor is good governance. The rule of law makes up the biggest component but also important is education. Education explains about more than a third of our intangible capital. And then for some of the countries in which we've been looking at, uh, we have also uh, the issue of uh, foreign remittances, which go into explaining that particular component. So this research is very important. Here are some of the, uh, the different shares of capital in different countries, low-income, middle-income, and high-income. But again, of course, we still have this big the, in, in big importance of intangible capital, Even in, notably even more important in the richer countries, in high-income countries, than it is in the low-income countries. In the poorest countries, natural capital is more important than produced capital. That's the other factor which we note in this research, and that is, that it is very important for us to help to sustain the natural capital base of these poor countries. I haven't got much time. I could go into more of these later, but here are some of the uh, indicators that even in rich countries like ours, although the share of natural capital is less, it declines, the actual value of natural capital increases. So these are natural capital resources, land, timber, and subsoil resources, and you notice that although we are, we are, as a share of our total wealth, it is much lower, the, the, actual, the, total, the actual value is in, in, in nominal terms is, is much higher than in the poorer countries. There's one other con- idea that I'd just like to talk about before I conclude, and that is genuine savings. Genuine savings is the idea that we try and measure not only how much we save in, in financial terms, but we adjust that saving for the amount we deplete our natural capital, our human capital, and our our physical capital. So uh, if we start with gross savings on the left, we adjust for the depreciation of natural capital, we get a slightly lower figure. We then add back what we invest in education and that increases our savings, but then we subtract what we deplete in natural resources and we deduct what we have in pollution damages, we end up with the final figure, which in this case is negative. Now, negative genuine savings does mean that we're not passing on to future generations what, as much as we inherited, and that's a real indicator of unsustainability. And We try to construct measures for different countries, and some of them, And not surprisingly, uh, the the East Asian Pacific countries have high genuine savings. The sub-Saharan countries and some of the Middle Eastern countries are living off their capital. I won't go through these in great detail. I don't have much time. Here is one uh, slide which is perhaps quite interesting, and that is that genuine savings do seem to be converging. Uh, And and if you look at the, the world's regions, which is, which is encouraging that even the, some of the poorer countries are moving towards higher uh, – some of the low-income countries have been moving towards higher genuine savings. These are genuine savings uh, by, by by different countries, including the UK. We're not doing particularly well here. We've got genuine savings of about 8%, uh, certainly the, the – Striking example of, of high levels of savings recently was Ireland, with very high twenty percent uh, savings levels um, in 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 the in two thousand and four. Uh, so uh, it's an important indicator of savings. Uh, negative savings are uh, savings rates are a warning sign. We do have uh, not all developing countries have negative genuine savings, and countries that are resource rich are often. Uh, like the oil-producing uh, countries have ne- can have negative, gen- genuine savings. I think I won't say much. We, the, the other exciting area of work here is that we are trying to develop indicators of, uh, of uh, uh, sustainability at the level of the firm, and we're trying to develop... The, there is a lot of work on this triple bottom line where we look not only at profits, but we also look at the impact, the ecological footprint of the company and the social footprint of companies. And we have a lot to, which is going on here, which is really exciting, where there's the carbon disclosure project of co- companies with over $41 trillion in assets. And there's the UN res- principles of responsible investment, the UN Global Compact, and the equator principles. Um, just so, some final thoughts. I know I've uh, perhaps overrun my time. GDP is not a good measure of well-being, but growth in GDP is important to alleviate poverty. Happiness measures offer offer some useful guidance, but by themselves they're not enough to to guide details of policy. But together, these two indicators, along with some of the others that I've pointed to, are useful, uh, and I think that they can help us to understand better the directions in which our policy should go. Thank you very much.